Hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast, episode 134. This is madness. I'm so, so, so excited for this episode. Uh, I was very, very humbled and lucky to have both Daniel and Amanda on from Recalibrated Bodies. These are two people who have been in the industry for a very long time and know their stuff like the back of their hand. And I was so fortunate to chat with both of them. This is their first ever podcast doing the podcast together, which is incredible. So we talk about so many topics and I know this is going to help so many people out there. So we talk about how to start an online business, how where they saw the gap, what they changed to their lives and how they made their lives and, and their values work for themselves. Training as a parent, how to get that stuff done for yourself. We talk about yo-yo dieting. We talk about the myth around the 10,000 steps that is put out there by so many people and the marketing com- teams and companies and stuff like that as well. We talk about sleep. We start about where to start in the gym in January as well. So hopefully you guys enjoy the episode with Daniel and Amanda from Recalibrated Bodies. Hey guys, so thank you so much for, for coming on. My pleasure, mate. Thanks for having us. Thanks it's, for having us, Shane. Looking forward to having a bit of a chat this morning. As I was saying, Ophir, it's the first two-on-one. So I think it's the first time you guys have been on together as well. So this should be uh, interesting. That's right. Yep, this is uh, the first time for everyone here. Exactly. So guys, I'm going to let you guys, I, I did a brief intro for you in the, the very beginning, but brief as it could be, because you guys are so experienced in what you do. How do you guys kind of move into the whole of online coaching? Because you guys have been doing it before it was like the fad or everyone kind of jumped on. So how did you guys get into it? Yeah, that's it. So it was, it was a pretty intuitive um, transition for us. We are both personal trainers and we were training clients and um, a lot of our clients were basically just, you know, general type of goals, just wanting to lose a bit of body fat, improve a bit of muscle tone, that sort of stuff like that. And we found that personal training wasn't the right avenue for what a lot of people actually needed to focus on in reaching their goals, which was predominantly diet and just having structure, accountability and a routine. And so we felt that with personal training, a lot of the times for most of our clients, they were kind of spending money on something they didn't quite need and it wasn't optimal for what they were trying to achieve. And online coaching allowed us to provide exactly what they needed, which was a program, structure, accountability, and a routine for a much more cost-efficient and effective means, which allowed us to make it a lot more affordable for everyone. It also opened up the doors to allow people from all over the world to work with us. They didn't have to be near us. And it also made it a lot more simple in that um, it was a lot easier to be accountable. You know, you didn't have to actually travel and drive half an hour to catch up with your coach and take time out of the day, set appointments, that sort of stuff. The online coaching, Um, platform allowed us to allow people to get in contact with us complete their check-ins at any time of the week any time of the day whenever felt was best suited to them and that really helped increase i could help a far greater range of people for a much more affordable price but they were still getting the professional um, aspect of working with a coach but just in a different setting yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. I think when when people are kind of going from there, there's a little bit of reluctancy when people they hear online coaching because there's so many so-called not amazing coaches out there, and anyone can call themselves an online coach. Yeah. How do you guys kind of like what would be the caveat that you would put to someone if they were looking for an online coach to kind of get away from like the rubbishy stuff that's out there? Probably the biggest thing that I would emphasize is make sure that that person has 
at least a qualification of some sort. There's a lot of dodgy people out there that aren't even qualified that are doing online training. Um, so like anything, that's probably the first thing you really want to look for. But also their, their interest in continuing their education or at least their experience in the field. And, you know, like you can also get a really good vibe from someone as to whether they're just trying to make a quick buck or if they're really trying to improve people's health and fitness and achieve their goals. Yeah, I think that that is amazing. If if someone's invested in themselves as well as a coach, I think that's a massive thing as well because yeah. anyone, as you said, anyone can call themselves an online coach and it's unfortunately a lot out there. How do you guys, because I think Daniel in particular, you had a, you were going down the pilot route. Uh, how do you guys kind of kind of deal with the, the fallout or any negativity that's thrown your way from going from sort of a so-called amazing career before COVID anyway? um to kind of where you are now like because there is a little bit of bite back when you do kind of go out self-employed how did you deal with that yourselves yeah it was actually it was a very difficult and challenging time and the vibes that we got when i started personal training and online coaching was actually very positive from the general community because growing up i was always very much into health and fitness i always used to study health and fitness in my spare time even when I was completing my bachelor's degree in aviation and flight training and all that sort of stuff like that. So people always kind of knew me as someone that was like that health and fitness person during school and uh, my early 20s and that sort of stuff. So when I transitioned into online coaching, for some people, it was actually, they were very kind of happy for me in that they could see that I actually had so much passion in it that I was actually pursuing it. Um, but there was a little bit of negative vibes from some other people like uh, family and other friends in the pilot industry that kind of saw it as me downgrading my career in a way because I guess something like being a pilot is kind of put on a pedestal as this one. It's, it's kind of like a doctor, you know. People believe that becoming a doctor is a much better profession than some other professions out there, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to what the person's actually passionate about. And I, I really think that Daniel's past career is such a huge influence in how we have built the business because he came from such a professional background where it was all about systems, checks. How can you make this process so streamlined, you know, um, like we have a standard operating procedure. I didn't even have that when I was working clinically, but Daniel was like, no, we need to bring this in so that we're on the same page as what's the turnaround to get back to client check-ins. How do we deal with somebody that wants to upgrade their program? You know, simple things like that. So having all those processes in place has really helped us become better coaches because it's freed up so much more time that we can work on increasing our, you know, further education. Daniel's gone back to do another um, bachelor's in strength and conditioning. So like without having those processes in place, I really think that we probably wouldn't have gotten to where we are now and been able to deal with the demand of client of the client load that we work with. And another thing um, is the recency. So like when you're a pilot, you have to have X amount of hours every month on your pilot license to keep up and they call it recency. So for us, you know, like I know in our industry, we've got like um, CPE points and things like that, whereas that's something we really focus on because of his background. So it's had a really positive impact even though i think daniel did struggle with that transition from going from a pilot and online coach for a little while but the fundamentals of his training has really carried across into how we run our business now um, which has really really been helpful 
that that's amazing because I think the systems is the bit the hardest part because you can just be a busy fool. You can be pulling yeah. right center, <laughs> especially when you start. You're like, what is happening? And then you get all the text messages and the WhatsApp messages or however however you do it with your clients. And it's important to kind of have those buffers that you're not just on your phone all day because otherwise you're not good to yourself. Your training, your mental health, everything kind of just goes to shit. Um, and and yeah. then you're useless to the to your clients. What advice would you give to someone? who is looking to change career because I think obviously what's what's going on, particularly in around the world. Anyway, there's a lot of people, unfortunately have lost their jobs. Um, and I think a lot of people now have kind of realized that they potentially have had the, the wrong ladder against the wrong wall for so long. How, yeah. what, advi- what advice would you, would you give to someone? And I think as well, like, you know, for those people that may have lost their jobs, it's the perfect opportunity to, you know, link in with another more experienced coach and like ask for work experience, ask to complete an internship. And that was part of my first degree from UL. So in 2005, I headed off to Australia as a very naive 19 year old, um, unsure of what to expect. But I went in and worked with one of the first labs um, that were accredited with the AIS outside of Canberra. So it gave me like amazing work experience. It showed me how, you know, things should be done in a professional manner, but it also opened so many doors and opportunities um, to people that I'm still, I still speak to all the time, you know, if I have questions or if I need to refer on to someone or do you happen to have this paper? Um, so I think people, you know, and I did that for off my own back. So, well, I didn't, my parents thankfully supported me, but it was nine months where I could have just gone into a good job gotten paid every week but like you kind of have to look at the bigger picture and sometimes giving your free time at that time can be a little bit frustrating but in essence it's going to come back and help you develop your career because you now have something that you can put on your cv to say i've done x y and z it's really interesting that at 19 you kind of you knew what you wanted to do because i think that's a lot of people well i know myself i only changed career at 29 so i was pushed down a route and i didn't want to go down it to be completely honest, like I've always had this like massive passion for traveling and seeing the world. So when I was picking my degree in sports science in, back into that, I started in 2002 and my careers advisor was like, no, you need to do a business degree. And like I hadn't a clue about it just wasn't on my radar. I wasn't interested in business management at the time or anything. Um, so for me, it was like when I learned that there was this nine months internship I was like where can I go and see that you know my parents are going to you know help fund this for me because like it's part of my like tuition basically um and and at the time it was something you know I'd always been into sports I'd always been into training but the the fundamentals of like being able to travel learning something else in a different environment it just like it sold it to me I was so so interested in seeing a little bit of the world and I think an online platform then makes sense now when I look back at that because we have had the ability like we've traveled to 61 countries together since we've started the business um so I think now when I actually mesh that together and and think about it out loud the online platform has probably always suited us because I can fuel that desire to see some of the world and experience like different cultures while running a business so it's yeah it's been great that's amazing because I think too many people, I think, kind of when they're working, they kind of work to live uh, or live to work, should I say. But you've made it through the way around. You've kind of matched your passion and your travel 
to what you want to do and make it work for yourself. And you're very fortunate to do that. But you guys have worked extremely hard to get to where you want to go as well. Want to work with someone or kind of benchmark yourself or learn or sponge off the, the people who have already walked the walk. I think that's a massive thing. And I know you guys are, are fortunate as well to have people around you who you ask questions to as well still because you, you never stop learning and what, what, what we do. And it's, it's important to have those as well that you can kind of say if someone is um i don't know a dietitian or something like that they may have a different angle and that may make you learn so you can go and research that yourself so that's hugely hugely important the next question i think is it kind of comes in an awful lot from what my clients is like how do you guys prepare or get your own training sorted as busy professionals but also as parents because especially at the age your 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 amazing kids are at they can be quite hands-on. I think I don't think kids ever stop being hands-on, but when they're at that age, it, yeah. it, 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 it can be more difficult. But how? what advice would you have for, for others and how do you guys kind of work it for yourselves? Um, like at the moment, I'm just studying a degree in strength and conditioning. I'm doing a bachelor's degree. And that's one of the biggest turning points I've had in my coaching career is going out and actually getting formal education to help improve my knowledge in health and fitness and those types of um, capacities that I'm trying to learn. Uh, but if formal edu- education isn't quite an option at the time, then just even trying to read credible sources of information, whether it be online or podcasts or whatever it might be, can be a huge help to help improve your knowledge. I know for myself, I've learned many things from podcasts in the past that I just wouldn't have the opportunity to study formally, but just having those little nuggets of information can just help to improve your quality of coaching with clients when they might fall into a, an issue that you're not ex- actually um, formally trained in. And how do you guys kind of prepare your own kind of training yourself in relation to kind of being busy professionals and being parents and stuff like that? Because that's, that's a huge thing that a lot of people do struggle with. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very tough at times. It can be very challenging trying to juggle everything. Um, but one of the biggest things I recommend is making sure that your training is something that you're intrinsically motivated to do. Um, if it's something that you're doing because you enjoy and genuinely want to achieve as opposed to it just being a means to an end, then it's a lot easier to maintain in your lifestyle and continue adhering to I also believe that goal setting can be a huge um, benefit to trying to uh, stick to a regime as setting those goals and putting a timeline on it can be very helpful in helping to put the pressure on to ensure that you do complete the training that you need to do to achieve your goals. And I think as well, I'm just going to chime in with a James Clear quote, um, which I think is really applicable in it for this question. So outcomes are about what you get, processes are about what you do, and identity is about what you believe. So if you really believe in, you know, why you're training, the reason behind your training, the more that you can align your identity with those beliefs, the more likely you are to make it a habit and it's less of a chore or a stress or something that you need to tick off the list every day. So I know for me, um, like I went from an international competitor to a mother within the space of a year. So my identity completely changed, but the fundamentals about why I was training was still there. You know, um, obviously the goal of the training was different. Like that was so aesthetic based. Whereas when I was pregnant, it was like, how can I stay strong? How can I maintain as much muscle mass through my pregnancy to make labor? 
a little bit easier. Um, how can I, you know, help my body cope with those morphological changes with, you know, getting a big bump, which I had. Um, so like when you can really believe in the system behind why you're doing something, it definitely makes it far easier to make it a habit that it's just something that you do day in, day out because it's part of who you are. Do you think people rely too much on motivation? So a lot of what happens an awful lot from from working with, particularly when I was doing face-to-face, is like, I'm not motivated to do this or I've lost motivation. Do you think people rely too much on motivation to bring themselves to their destination rather than kind of like, as bro as it sounds, kind of just showing up? Yeah, 100%. And it's an unfortunate reality that motivation is a starting point, but it won't carry you through throughout the entire journey. And discipline at the end of the day is what is really needed to achieve your goals and continue doing exactly what is needed to achieve those goals. Um, Motivation is something that will die off eventually and there will be days where you aren't motivated. Um, And on those days, it's important to be disciplined to carry on doing what you need to do. Yeah, Sorry, go ahead, Amanda. Sorry, Jane. Um, I think like obviously discipline is a huge part of it, but again, it just if you tie in discipline with like that identity change as to why you want to keep these new behaviors going, motivation will get you started, but it's not going to keep you going. Um, whereas, yeah, when you can tie in like the initial motivation, the discipline, and that identity change in uh, implementing those behaviors on a day in day out basis that's where you're really going to get from a to b as opposed to a and then stalling because that initial motivation does wean i think what you mentioned about the james clear quote or the quote came into my head when you were when you mentioned that about there's a, a german philosopher i think it's his name is nietzsche i've definitely murdered that name but he talks about <laughs> he, he or she who has a why will overcome anyhow and i think that's really really important particularly what's going on and the gym's potentially opening back up that it's it's better for you to say right set small goals like you guys have said don't set yourself t- too much up for failure and like what amanda has done for herself and her own training is right i'm going to go three days a week and that's what i can adhere to rather than setting yourself up for six or seven days a week you get it done once you can barely walk down the stairs and then you get fed up mm-hmm. but i think it's, it's super super important to have that why and try to bring an emotional attachment to it um and even like from myself my my emotional attachment is my mental health the aesthetics or looking good and clothes is a is a is a bonus on top of it um when someone comes to you guys for looking to get into shape or losing weight what is the biggest thing you look out for on the application form and why so it's setting people up to win from the very very start by making it as personalized and tailored and um, to their lifestyle and to what their goals may be and I think a lot of the time, you know, when you've got challenging lifestyle such as, you know, in, in my case, at the moment with um, breastfeeding a seven-month-old is my sleep. Like my sleep is going to be all over the place because I'm waking up intermittently during the night and all the rest. So taking all of those lifestyle factors and building a program around that for the client is what's going to increase adherence and compliancy over the long run. And, you know, so often we focus on the numbers and the calories and how many sessions and the steps and all the rest, whereas you really need to look at it as like a more integrated approach, because while the numbers are important, there's it's a it's a much bigger picture, you know, and that holistic approach where you're looking at someone's stress, you're looking at someone's sleep, hydration, 
um, digestion, you know, how they cope in times of you know, what their stress management coping systems are, all of that, you know, is going to be so, so important. So when someone does come to us looking at getting into shape, it's like, how can you peel back the layers of an onion to see what's really underneath and then build a plan that's going to set them up to win from the get-go. Um, and I think that's so important because I see a lot of the time people are like, right, I'm, I want to commit to a training and nutrition program. And they're like, I can train seven days a week. I can do 50 million steps a day. I can, you know, live on a thousand calories. And it's like, as we talked about just before, like that initial motivation is there, but like, are you going to be able to comply to that day in, day out? And as we know, it's being consistent over a course of time is what's going to warrant those long-term results. So it's kind of like, yeah, taking all of that information and building a program that's going to set them up to win from the very, very start, as opposed to allowing, I suppose, ego get in the way a little bit where, you know, no, you don't need to train five or six times a week. I can get you where you want to be in three sessions, but that's going to free up time that you can spend with your family. You can go for a walk with the dog, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for me, like client profiling and Oh, what's the word like honing in on that skill where you can profile a client very efficiently is really really important from the get-go with clients it's definitely revolutionized i think it makes a difference between a, a coach that cares and a coach that doesn't care and i think that's what makes you guys stand out you mentioned the stress management because i think obviously the lines lines are blurred people of kind of wearing stress as a badge of honor for a very very long time how do you guys kind of implement kind of stress management tips with your own clients yeah, it can be very individualistic for the client themselves and it kind of depends on what the actual stressor is. There's a few basic things that we recommend to people, which is things like taking time for themselves, um, prioritising tasks, uh, coming up with schedules that help to manage their time more efficiently. They're the more general ones that tend to work on like a broad spectrum, but it can be very individualistic on what the actual structure is for someone as well. So, for example, some people often want to lose weight because they have uh, negative feelings about themselves or they might be in a relationship that is affecting their self-esteem or their self-worth and that can cause a lot of stress for them and with those kind of clients it's a very this is where the coaching aspect really comes into it and it's trying to find out what is actually causing the stress and then trying to eliminate that or minimize it as much as possible but of course with that as well yeah as coaches or as fitness coaches we have to realize that we're not psychologists as well so it's a very it's a very fine line you have to walk between how much you help someone with those sort of things and when you refer out to someone else for uh, more medical or more professional assistance with those sort of things. I think that's really important as well. When I was working clinically, we um, worked under one roof. So we'd like a GP, we had a physio physiotherapist, we had a psychologist, um, we had a nutritionist, dietitian. We'd like a whole range of different um, professionals under the one roof. And if someone came to me and I was like, okay, you could do with seeing, you know, having a couple of therapy sessions because the underlying reason as to why you're not achieving your goals is like out of my scope of practice. And I think um, even in an online setting, like we, we do that all the time. Like we have a list of physiologists and physiotherapists, sorry, and um, psychologists and different, you know, cognitive behavior, behavioral therapists that we'll say to clients, maybe you need to have a chat with someone, maybe that there's more going on behind 
the, the closed doors that you need that little bit more help with in a professional capacity. So I really think um, it can be hard when you're starting out as a new coach because you want to be able to give everything to your client but you're not a one-shop stop and one-shop stop is that one-stop shop shop. (laughs) (laughs) that's the sleep deprivation um you're not a one-stop shop and it's okay to reach out to other professionals and get you know their opinion or help or give the clients the opportunity to work on something that's out of your scope of practice I think you, the fact that you mentioned like your, your referral systems, like that works both ways. So say if a physio is someone who's looking to lose weight, they can refer to you as well. And it's having that whole thing uh, as well, which has been, which has been key for me. So I have like, I have a physio that I, I would send my clients to, or I have two or three uh, counselors that I would send my clients to. And it has both worked both ways. I think it is staying in your lane. I think, as you said, when you do start out, you try to be everything but you can't be everything to everyone. You have to be able to say to yourself, right, I have to pull back. What, what am I good at? I'm good at trying to get someone to into some sort of shape. I'm good at trying to get them to get a little bit more sleep and getting and being a little bit kinder to themselves. But what can someone else do and add a little bit more strength to that, a little bit, add another strength to their bow and look after themselves mentally? Because I think CPT in particular, there are a lot of people with who struggle mentally, particularly what's going on. There's a, a lot of those kind of feelings are very raw for people at the minute. So I'm delighted you brought that back up with with what's going on. And I think it's been going on for ages. And whoever's listened to this podcast for a while knows I despise. I call them skimming clubs. Um why yo-yo dieting can make fat loss harder because I think so many people buy into it. Like within a two-mile radius, I have four meetings of skimming clubs around me. Um, why can yo-yo dieting make fat loss harder? Yeah, so yo-yo dieting is a bit of a tricky one, but when there's a few components of yo-yo dieting that can make um, quite challenging, one of them is that it's almost a behavioral pattern that someone has learned. So there's a lot of psychological aspects that are involved with yo-yo dieting that is hindering the person from actually being able to make sustainable results. Um, But also in context of like the physiological issues that result with yo-yo dieting is that it places the body under a lot of stress and it's been well documented that when people diet, especially on a very low calorie diet, it's increased potential for losses of lean body mass. And if someone loses weight in an exaggerated time frame, and they end up losing some body mass or lean body mass in that time course, then trying to regain some of that lean body mass can take a lot longer than what it can to regain the body fat that results after yo-yo dieting. Uh, so some people can end up finding that after multiple times of losing weight, they start to look skinnier than what they did the first time they had lost their weight. And that can be a result of them losing lean body mass. And studies have shown that lean body mass is a high predictor of basal metabolic rate. So the more lean body mass that someone carries, the higher the metabolism will run and that allows them to consume more food to maintain their weight. So they end up putting themselves into this corner where they're continuously making it harder for themselves every time to lose weight as they might be negatively affecting their basal metabolic rate. And I think as well, like there's like obviously Daniel just spoke about the physiological implications of it, but from a psychological um, viewpoint, that constant, you know, there is this culture where when you lose weight, people will comment on how you look. So every time you lose weight, 
Um, people are like, oh, you look great. And then you have this association that you don't look great if you're not losing weight. So that rebound effect from, you know, that yo-yo, yo-yo, yo yo-yo-yo, <laughs> that yo-yo effect is um, essentially going to make people, make that person feel like they're only good when they're on the lower weight spectrum because that's when people generally tend to compliment people. So I think over time as well, it can really impact self-confidence and self-esteem yeah i think if people are on you see also when you're looking at someone you're only seeing kind of the outside you're not seeing what's going on on internally so i know when people are say maybe commenting on say someone has lost weight that could be also stress induced weight loss or something else going on i know myself that was my issue i lost like two stone in six weeks when i got sick and people were commenting oh you look great and i was like i feel like shit inside um, so it wasn't yeah. necessarily a, a positive link to it um, and I think it's it's important to kind of like maybe to, for people not to really comment on how people are look uh, particularly with social media and like if you look at the dating apps and stuff like that that's what's, what's what we do now is we look at someone and we're like we almost judge them straight away but it's almost trying to take a step back and say right this person may not it may, this person may be doing a fitness journey but they also be, could be super stressed and could be something else going on. So just it, but there's a caveat, there's, a, there's both sides to it and the mm-hmm. positive and negative of, of everything. So I think it's super important to take that into account uh, as well. Um, That's such I, a valid point. Um, and it's something probably people don't think about that there is more, you know, when people lose weight, people always think that it's like an effort on their behalf. And this is something that that person is trying to achieve. But like you said, it could be illness, it could be you know, stress, they could be in a, you know, bad relationship, they may have lost their job, you know, there's so many um, different aspects of it. So that's such a really, really good point to bring up as well, Shane. Thank you. Um, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, In relation to kind of like the, the, you guys have been in the industry for a a long time. What trends have you seen uh, in the last, last little while anyway, and what trends should, should people be wary of when it kind of looking to, when it, comes to kind of getting in shape or losing weight or whatever it may be yeah we've seen it all um especially not just over the time that we've been coaching but even just over the time that we've been interested in health and fitness you know it's we all know that back in the 80s and 90s that everyone was afraid of fats and now everyone is afraid of carbs so our trends swing completely from one spectrum to another throughout the years and basically, like, my opinion on trends is that if there is anything trending, it more than likely isn't something that has as much merit as what might meet the eye initially and that to always be wary of what trends are popping up at the time. Um, the fundamentals of weight loss, strength, muscle mass gaining, all those sort of things like that, like, they've been established for a long long time now and they're not changing that's just physiology and any trend that really hypes themselves up to be better than those fundamentals uh straight up going to be something that won't last too long what's the worst one you've heard oh um (laughs) i think the celery juice diet really gets to me (laughs) 
It's like, of course, you're losing weight um, because you're like eating four, drinking 400 calories a day. But that one, and like there was a lot of, you know, doctors that got behind that as well, which was just a little bit crazy because in society, we really do put our trust into those medical professionals. I know for mom, for my family, for instance, like mom is really old school and the doctor could tell her anything and she'll take it for, you know, gospel. So that one really um, stuck with me. And the the two that kind of get to me is, these calories burned in a session so people are taking away the enjoyment of training and focusing on the numbers of the calories that they're burning which is you know generally either over or underestimated so it's not accurate at all and the other trend that i've seen at the moment is the body positivity movement so i really think it's awesome that you know people are starting to learn to accept their bodies more and that's not where i have the issue with but it's these girls that are you know using this movement to create content on instagram that are you know at size eight or ten and they're like oh but look at my rolls and they're like bent over trying to grab these rolls of fat that you know everyone has but they're failing to realize is, you know, what about the, the girls that actually have weight problems that are size 16, size 18? How is that going to make them feel? And yeah, I think that's probably the one that's really irking me at the moment. It's like, I can see where they're coming from, but I think there's a massive oversight in that you're actually creating a problem that's not actually there. And people that really do have this problem then are being well, if she feels bad about herself when she's a size eight, how am I, how should I feel about myself at a size 16? Or, you know, whatever size it may be, like not putting numbers to it. So that's definitely one that's kind of gotten to me in the last year, I suppose. That's a, I, I yeah, I, I, I agree with the, the, the last little bit about saying like, if, because a lot of people would strive for say a lower size and then they're seeing that person's unhappy at that size and they're kind of like, they get a little bit confused and get, pull left right and center by what to actually believe in so that's i think that's a really uh good statement i think the one for me is the carbohydrates are bad um i think if i had hair it would have been pulled out a long time ago with the whole carbs are bad for you um it it irritates me so and i and i get a com i get a message on a daily basis about carbohydrates from dms um and yeah it, it it's it irks me an awful lot and i i just want people to act just chill out have ice cream life's too short without ice cream that's um that's the important <laughs> especially uh, when you have two kids <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> yeah you mentioned about kind of the the, the burning calories and and being more and stuff like that and you you guys put up an amazing story up on your up on your your instagram recently about kind of the magic 10k steps which everyone kind of strives for and there's a lot of information about kind of the 10k steps and calories burnt and all this kind of stuff with Fitbits and Garmin's and all those kind of stuff. Where did this number kind of come from? And what is the actual, is there an, is there an optimal number for kind of neat? Um, so it's actually really interesting. There's no kind of substance behind where the 10k came from. It was actually a marketing tool that was developed in the 60s by a Japanese company um, that were selling pedometers called Mampo-K, excuse my pronunciation. And that literally translates into 10,000 step meter. So they had developed this product and then they started using this slogan, um, which when you translate it into English was, let's walk 10,000 steps a day. And that was how they marketed their advice. So over time, that's where the 10K... Um, 
goal, I suppose, originated from. So it wasn't from science. It wasn't from any evidence or studies. It was literally a 1960s Japanese company that had called their product 10,000 Steps. That's mad. Isn't it crazy when you think about it? So, so crazy because a lot of the time, you know, there is so much pressure on people to hit all these numbers. Um, And like there was a study last year and that was actually, I think it was in China, and they looked at mortality rates and steps. And from what you see on social media, you'd imagine that the more steps you take, the better the mortality outcomes are going to be. But what the actual study found that when people increase their steps from 2,700 a day up to 4,400 steps a day, they, there were significantly lower mortality rates. But when the steps progressively increased to 7,500 a day, the mortality rate progressively decreased up until that point, but then it leveled off. So 7,500 steps seems to be a good number for like the health side of things um, based on what a lot of the research is showing. And the other kind of side of things with it is with the 10,000 steps, like how you're accumulating them can have a massive impact on your health. So if you're just plodding around the place all day, every day, is it is that as effective as doing, you know, your 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity most days of, of the week, that that like higher level of activity is going to confer the health benefits of physical ex, of physical activity as opposed to just hitting a number on a watch. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. And then, you know, there's like a lot, like for me, when I was in prep, I used um, a Fitbit just to monitor my NEAT. And that came down to, you know, obviously when you're dieting so, so hard, your NEAT is going to decrease with underfeeding. But like, I went a little bit crazy with it. Like, I remember mom was looking out the window one night and she's like, Daniel, what's Amanda doing? I was walking around the house to try and hit this number on my watch. And like, you know, in retrospect at the time, because I was in contest prep, it was required that my niche would be like over the course of the day, very, very similar because my goals were very, very um, defined. But for, you know, most people increasing your output, that little bit, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the 10K, can have those health impacts without having this massive pressure of hitting an, a set number every single day when you know in real life yeah and just that i'm aware of is that increasing your step count doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to burn a greater amount of energy um there's a few studies showing that energy expenditures throughout the course of the day is actually that the body will try and regulate how much energy is expended to try and conserve some if it starts to become excessive so a lot of people think that if they, you know, walk 20,000 steps a day, then they're going to burn twice as much energy as to 10,000 steps. But the science is starting to show that that's actually not the case and that increasing your activity levels isn't a linear increase in energy expenditure and that sometimes there becomes a trade-off where doing more doesn't give you quite the improvement that you would believe it would. Um, So a lot of times as well is that even though increasing your activity levels is always a good thing. There is a point where it starts to plateau and further increases aren't necessarily worth the time that you have to invest in trying to achieve that physical activity. 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing there is kind of like it's looking at health from a holistic point of view. So actually li- linking it towards more potentially your mental health and just getting outside. Like if you've got kids, dogs, cats, ferrets, bring them for a walk and link it to like habit stack and and, and link it to that rather than putting a, a, a target on it. Like the Fitbits are amazing for getting people to move. But if the underlying thing behind that is that it's to see a amount of calories burnt on a particular watch when those watches aren't very accurate and stanford or harvard did research on it and they said even the apple iWatch is up to 20 percent there's a margin for error of up to 20 percent with those and then the most accurate ones so you can only imagine what the, the rest of them have uh, on that regard um yeah what about sleep guys because i think this is one of those things that a lot of people do struggle with because if you look from like the 1950s or the 1960s, people on average are probably getting around nine hours of sleep on average. And if you look at it now in 2020, you can see that the average person is probably getting about six hours, 50 to seven hours, 10 minutes. Uh, and there's a link to the amount of light that's in people's houses or the link to the amount of people lights on their phones or Kindles, whatever it may be. How, can sleep deficiency can can affect fat loss? Okay, the 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 first one that I'll talk about is its impact on impairing appetite regulation. So, without getting too sciencey, um, there's two hormones, leptin and ghrelin, and they're both basically like help with appetite regulation. So, leptin is released by fat cells, and it's in the signal to the brain that the body has stored enough energy and doesn't need for further consumption. So, you don't need to eat anymore. And therefore, there's a decrease in appetite. As leptin decreases, your appetite will increase. So when you look at some of the studies, when leptin was decreased by 18%, there was a 23% increase in appetite. So that's huge. So if your goal is fat loss and you're in a sleep deprivation mode, um, you know, over a course of time, you're constantly trying to battle, not only staying on track, but now you have like all these hormones that are trying to tell you to eat more. So the appetite regulation side of things is really, really important to bring attention to. And without, you know, like, so obviously the hormone side of things is very complex. um, And even a basic understanding of if you're not sleeping long enough, you're awake longer. So you've got this bigger window of opportunity to eat more food. So like, that's a really simple one um, that I think can explain like how, you know, you have to be having optimal sleep levels to, to help with your fat loss goals. And the other one that a lot of the research has shown is that if you are in that sleep deprivation mode, you're going to experience increased cravings. So, you know, if you've ever had a craving in your life before, it's not going to be chicken and broccoli. You're going to be looking for that hyper palatable food, which is usually higher in calories. So again, it's only, there's only so much that you can do to withstand the temptation and you're making your dieting um, journey a lot harder than what it needs to be. So there's like a massive reduced awareness of portion control with those hyper palatable foods so for me like when I'm talking to clients and I'm like looking at their sleep habits now obviously it's it's going to vary person to person and if there's kids involved in the whole lot like it's it's a little bit more complex to solve it but for a lot of people working on improving that sleep hygiene is going to help with their appetite regulation and it's going to over time reduce cravings now obviously cravings can come up at certain times your menstrual cycle and all the rest but for the best part of things if you can 
honing on working on both of those, it's really going to have such a positive um, like knock-on effect on how easy it is to stick with your calories and to make the fat loss journey just that little bit more enjoyable. Yeah, there was also a really interesting study that was done um, recently that looked at sleep curtailment and the amount of fat mass first, fat-free mass that was lost in people that lost weight. Um, and basically what it showed was that the people that slept about five to six hours per night actually lost far less amount of body fat. I think the, the percentage was 55% less body fat compared to the people who slept. It was about seven and a half hours per night. And the ones that slept only about five hours per night also lost around 60% lean body mass compared to the people that slept more. So what essentially happened, what the study showed was that when uh, people don't sleep enough hours, they actually tend to burn more lean body mass. So that's things like muscle mass, uh, glycogen stores, and they started to reduce the amount of fat stores they actually burned. So even though the participants lost the same amount of weight, the ratio of fat mass to fat-free mass that they lost was completely different. And it was a huge difference as well. It wasn't like as if the people that slept a little bit less just lost a little bit less body fat. They actually lost a huge amount less compared to the people that slept more. Yeah, and I think too, like a lot of people are very quick to reach for like supplementation when it comes to like the sleep and stuff like that. And yes, it can help, but I think you may be better off trying to set up the environment for yourself. And I think the hardest problem for a lot of people um, is the phone, the phone in the bedroom, the alarm clock, the, Inst- the Instagram, the DMs, all that kind of stuff coming in. Like, there's not much happening after 9 p.m at the moment in Ireland. So I don't understand why. <laughs> I like there's nothing happening. Like, so I don't know why people have like their phones in the room. And I, it's been, it's I, the only reason I say it like this, because I implemented at the beginning of the first lockdown and to say my sleep and my mental health is so much better because the phones in, isn't in the room. Like if you, if you, like people are like on oh, my alarm clock, you can get an old school alarm clock for like four euro or one euro from a pound shop and just set it up that way. Um, I think it, the sleep is, it, it's underutilized and it's one of those unsexy pillars that people tend to not lean on when, uh, when they kind of go out on any fitness, fitness journey as parents and stuff like that. How, what little tips have you brought into your, to your own routine to kind of make sure you guys are getting enough sleep? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. Like, we've always kind of prioritized sleep just because we've always kind of had a good idea of its benefit to health as well as body composition, training performance, and recovery, and that sort of stuff like that. But it was especially hard and once we did become parents because trying to get your kid to bed on time can become very difficult. Um, and we noticed that one of the things that was starting to impact our children's sweet sleep quality, in particular, Maya, who's our oldest one was that we had bright lights turned on for most of the night um, because we were nowhere near ready to go to bed. But, of course, she was starting to get ready for sleep, but these bright lights were starting to interrupt with her body getting into a um, state of being able to fall asleep. So we essentially started dimming down all the lights, replacing a lot of lights for candles in our house and trying to get her ready for a sleep state within half an hour of her usual bedtime. And not only did that help to improve her sleep 
immensely, but it also carried over into our own sleep because once we had the house darkened and, you know, we have candles lit instead of bright lights, we just left that on for the rest of the night and we found ourselves that we started getting tired much earlier and our sleep quality started to improve significantly as well. And I think as well, just to add, like, this is one point that me and Daniel always kill each other, well, not always kill each other, but he is so anal about melatonin and sleep. So, like, I think it must come from there in his piloting degree, there's like a massive emphasis on sleep and performance when you're flying. So it is, it's huge. <laughs> if you've got like um, an Airbus full of 177 passengers, you know, like the... Um, not going to affect poor sleep in terms of performance. Like you're in charge of those people's lives, basically. So in his first degree, there's just this massive um, emphasis on making sure that pilots are well rested and like there's so much research to, to document all that side of things. So every night before, you know, you'd be like finishing up work and sitting down on the couch and now like there's no phones. It's just to sit down, like we'll have a chat, have some candles lighting, getting ourselves into that like melatonin friendly kind of environment. And obviously with kids, it's just starting that process a couple of hours earlier. But it definitely, I've definitely noticed this time with the second baby that I'm not as fatigued or not as tired because I am putting far greater emphasis on um, creating better sleep associations just before bedtime for the kids and for ourselves. I really like the simple tool of getting the candles, but I also had the image of Father Jack's candles from Father Ted lying around the house as well. So <laughs> <laughs> We made Daniel watch a Father Ted episode once and it was disastrous. He hadn't a clue what they were saying. It was priceless. <laughs> it doesn't travel. It doesn't. No, no, no. Doesn't have the same effect on Australians. <laughs> no, you're you're missing out. Um, <laughs> Big time. Uh, in relation to people starting out in the gym, because I think when this is going to go and out, it's kind of going to be aiming towards kind of like the first of January tribe, as I like to call them. Um, when people like Christmas is going to be weird, whatever happens this year, anyway. Um, but when with people starting out on say weight loss journeys or diets or going on any fitness journey, whatever it may be on the 1st of January, what advice would you have to kind of someone going into the gym, what to do, how to pace themselves, all that kind of stuff? I think one of the most important things, um, and it's probably something that has trended over the years as well, is like go hard or go home, that mentality about um, around your training. And, you know, people will say to me, oh, Amanda, like I was sore the first week, but now I'm not as sore after each session. And I'm like, that's good. That's what we want. You know, the first week, there's a new stimulus, you're going to feel a little bit of dominance, you're going to feel that muscle soreness. But as your body adjusts that stimulus, we want that dominance to decrease. You know, it's a sign that you're recovering better. You know, there's optimal protein in your diet, etc. And the people associate how they feel in terms of muscle soreness with the effectiveness of their workout. And a lot of the time they think that if they're not crippled, that they're not working hard enough or that the workout was ineffective. So I think that's a really important message, um, especially with lockdowns and gyms reopen next week. People are going to have access to heavier weights. They're going to have access to, you know, more equipment. They've been locked inside for six, six weeks, I think it was. Um, so, you know, they're going to want to spend a greater amount of time in the gym than what they would have, say, last year. So it's easing themselves back into it with a volume and workload that's conducive to their goals, that's not going to leave them crippled and have a knock-on effect for the rest of the sessions. Now, 
even for me two weeks ago I went out and did a leg session and Daniel's like do two sets of your exercises Daniel is coaching me at the moment um, and that's another podcast for another day and he was like just do two sets and I was like I came in and I was like oh I did a little bit more like I felt like I could do more and he's like Amanda you're not going to be able to move for the week and I, I was so sore the Tuesday and Wednesday and it had a really detrimental impact on the rest of my sessions for the week because I just couldn't you know like my range of motion was off I was stiff I was sore um so I think it's really important for people to start next week and the January um health buzz that will be around the corner is to ease yourself into into those sessions and realize that there will be an initial soreness and that you want that to dissipate you do not want that each session you don't want that week in week out um I think there was like one study that showed it can take nearly 47 days to recover from um, excessive muscle damage. So you can just imagine 47 days to get your body back to what it was before that session, how much of an impact that's going to have on the sessions within those within that time frame. Yeah, and another thing as well that people have to really be conscious of is that most people don't have heavy equipment at home. So during that six-week period, that's actually a lot of time for the body to detrain and not be accustomed to that level of workload anymore. And a lot of people, the first thing they want to do when they get back to the gym is load up the bar with as much weight as they can. But they fail to realize that their tendons and their ligaments are just not as strong as what they were before the lockdown period. So there's a higher risk of injury as well. And we've seen it all too many times where someone just goes a little bit too hard and they might have a, a muscle tear or they might have a, a tear in the tendons of the ligaments that are minor, but it could be a lot more severe to the point where they actually, could actually tear apart a muscle. So it's very important to realize that over that six week period where you haven't been able to lift a lot of weight, your body isn't used or isn't built to be able to handle as much weight as it used to be anymore. So it's very important to ease yourself back in progressively build the load back up and start with lighter weight and then progress to heavier weight. I think that's super important just to kind of leave uh, as Amanda didn't, which is leave the ego at the door when you're kind of going into lifting weights because you know you know what you can lift or you know what you've done before. Um, and I, even like as a coach, you probably know what to do, but it's when it's applying to yourself as the hardest part sometimes. Um, and the fact that you've got Daniel to support you on that is, is huge as well. But like you don't need to kill yourself in every session. I think that's a massive thing as well. Like you don't need to do these jumping. I do not. I will not miss jumping around the living room. I will tell you that for free. Uh, <laughs> the first lockdown, I know. Um, yes, yeah, so I think people think that they 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 need to kill themselves every session. You you really don't. Like out of ten sessions, two will be will be class. Two will be not amazing the rest will be kind of mediocre and it's about when you when you when you're feeling it after your kind of those initial kind of steps and those kind of couple of weeks about kind of saying to yourself right let, let's push and knowing when to push on certain times of the month for girls and stuff like that as well it is uh super super important guys i cannot thank you enough for giving up so much of your time on a sunday morning and uh, so guys where can people find out about yourselves and where can they work with you so we've got our website, which is recalibratedbodies.com, and we also have our Facebook and Instagram um, platforms, which are just Recalibrated Bodies. And if you just on that, you can find us on that. Amazing, guys. So thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, really, really appreciate your, your time because I know there was a, a few technical issues on the episode, uh, but thank you for being so patient and thank you for so much for coming on. 
So pleasure, Shane. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Shane. It was lovely to have a chat. Guys, if you've enjoyed that episode at all, as much as I have recording and chatting with Amanda and Daniel, please do tag us up on your stories. Please leave a review up on iTunes. The more reviews, the more shares, the more traction I can get, the, the bigger, the better. The amazing guests will continue. So please do continue to do so and support the, support the show as much as possible. Hope you guys enjoyed it and I'll talk to you very, very soon.